None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is writer and human rights advocate Morgan Godfin. Morgan spent five years incarcerated on a felony drug conviction. After her release, she graduated college and now works as an engagement editor for JSTOR Daily's American Prison Newspapers and serves on multiple boards overseeing drug policy in Oregon. Her recent piece in Filter is called Kratom Helps Me Cope With Life, So What's the Problem? Thank you so much for your time. It's it's been amazing going through all your uh, content. It, it's awesome stuff. You're a great writer, and uh, yeah, all quality and tons of it. And um, you're involved in a lot of organizations: uh, Bard Prison Initiative, Health and Justice Action Lab, Beats Overdose, uh, <laughs> which is I I was a musician, so that one's I'm right. glad to hear of that and. Uh, JSTOR? JSTOR Daily. Is my, yeah. That's my employer. Yeah, that's who pays my bills because, you know, volunteering does not pay the bills. <laughs> I love my job. It's super nerdy. Like, you know, when I was a kid, I, I'd get picked on for being a nerd. And then now that I just embrace the nerdiness, like, and I'm almost cool now for how nerdy I am. <laughs> Eventually, it'll come around and, and <laughs> right? you'll be cool. I don't know which one I am now. Tell me about that uh, American Prison Newspapers. Uh, it, it was a cool archive. I, I That's the one I was like, oh, that job would be cool, because I'm a writer, yeah. too. Yeah, tell me about that a little bit. I was looking at the uh, St. Patrick's Day uh, article. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I put that one together really quick. I just went to search St. Patrick's Day. Uh, so my job, I, I have to do a lot of different things for the job. So there's the, the primary source archive where it's, you know, we got, what, 1,600 issues of newspapers produced in prison by and for incarcerated people they span all the way from the 1800s to now so there's like this huge range of time and states from all over the country and you just see these like you know firsthand contemporary accounts of shifts through through history and policy and just the breadth of humanity so my job is to find really cool stories buried within that archive and get them written about in a way that's more easily digestible because not everybody has time to go read, you know, prison newspapers for a few hours. But when yeah. I find a really cool human story in there, I pull it out. I feel like I'm like an archaeologist and I'm excavating it out of the earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's cool. And so and that that's how I get them written about. I uh, you know, use freelancers. Sometimes I write my own features. I help other journalists and academics if they're searching for something in particular for their work, for a story or a book that they're writing or a class that they're teaching. I'm the little search troll. And so I go into archive and I try to find what they're looking for. Um, It just means that all day, every day, I am reading and writing about mass incarceration. And I know I'm super sick because I love my job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I know. There's my sign. Yeah. <laughs> so you have like a really amazing story and background and and um um you write extensively about it and spoken about it. Um I guess to, just do you want to give a little rundown? Yeah, for sure. So 
uh, born and raised in Portland, Oregon. I did the whole Oxycontin to heroin pipeline thing back in the late aughts when that was all the rage. Um, and then I ended up, you know, a victim of the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. So getting arrested over and over, technically they called it drug court, which was supposed to be a softer, kinder, gentler alternative to incarceration. But it yeah. just, it was the same thing. It was just rebranding. I ended up in jail over and over for the first time in my five-year addiction. That's when I lost my job. I, I uh, went to jail too many times. I got fired and that just decimated my life, really accelerated my addiction. Because, uh, duh, like we know that employment and being stably housed, these are the protective factors against deterioration. Mm -hmm. And I lost those. And then I ended up being the one who sold a gram of heroin to my best friend. And he overdosed and died off of that. And I was indicted for drug delivery resulting in death. I faced a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence in prison. I had a lot of mitigating factors. I was in the military. I was an EMT. Uh, I'm white and I'm middle class. And unfortunately, our justice system is so perverse that that matters. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to only get five years in prison. Mm -hmm. You uh, joined the Air Force uh, when you were 19 and you got injured in basic training. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's a super corny story. It's really embarrassing. So, um, yeah, I got injured in basic training. I got prescribed, you know, morphine at the hospital, Percocet for 30, 30 milligrams of Oxy for 30 days. And so when, I like to let people, especially when I first got out of prison and I was running up against so much stigma, so much stigma from addiction and prison, I let people think that I was one of those, quote, innocent victims of the opioid crisis. But that's that's such bullshit. It's so untrue. I had done drugs long before I ever joined the military. It was just mm -hmm. random coincidence that I ended up getting prescribed opioids. Mm -hmm. But getting discharged from the Air Force did devastate me because I had put my mom served in the Air Force for 20 years. I was like following in her footsteps. It was the first thing I'd ever done with my life that I could be proud of. And then I was en ended up right back home, not even two months later, had to walk back into Pizza Hut and grovel for my job back. It was so embarrassing. And <sighs> within a few months of that, I was addicted to heroin. I just, I couldn't surmount the depression, the hopelessness for my future. Wow. You, you're, you're actually the second uh, woman I've had we, I've had on the podcast who was uh, injured in basic training and and uh, no had an opioid addiction after that, which uh, <laughs> eventually got the kratom. <laughs> yeah, her so name's funny. That is so wild. Yeah, her name's uh, Jennifer Van Blanc. Uh, she's from Philly, but her story was particularly great. And and she was like had all kinds of tips about uh, how to get off subs and get on kratom. She had a whole I method. I didn't have to do all that because I just went to prison and cold turkey did. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to tell you about somebody else. Uh, have you ever heard of Bethany Hallam? She's I don't think so. Okay, she's a local. Um, I'm in Pittsburgh, and uh, she's a Allegheny County. That's Pittsburgh's county uh, councilwoman, and she she's in her 20s, and she ran on the fact that she follows she, me on Twitter. I know I recognize this now. No. Yep, yep. She ran yep. on the fact that that she ran her election campaign on the fact that she was um, um, addicted to opiates and, and she was incarcerated and now her big, that jail is awful and now her big issue is the Allegheny County Jail people people die in there all the time, they're, they're, yeah. it's just so she's on the oversight board and she's like super 
tough about it. Like, and it, and it's awesome. I was like so happy to vote for, her. but uh, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to mention her. But I mean, uh, the world is changing, right? Could yeah. you imagine that even five years ago? Oh God, no. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, the, like the job I have now with J Store Daily, like they let me just like get up and be like, I've been to prison, and prison is an injustice. And it's yeah. like an academic institution. It's the the world has changed. I mean, I think it's do you think it's part of the reason is like so many people are going to prison now. Like we have such yep. a huge population. It's not it you can't you know, like uh, a white middle class guy like me just can't forget that right. you know because oh that only happens to those people over there yeah, the yeah. bad people yeah yeah no so and then same thing with the overdose crisis which is why we're going to see like a pretty radical shift in our approach to the war on drugs it's because it's reached a magnitude never before seen in in human history like one hundred five thousand mm-hmm. people died last year how many loved ones did they leave behind about mm-hmm. you know at least five probably so we have a half a million americans grieving a loss in one year alone once you reach that level of saturation, you, you can't ignore it anymore. A lot of people ascribe that to the the CDC guidelines not really helping uh, and doctors afraid to prescribing to like chron- even chronic pain patients and, you know, people being mm. um, declared drug seekers by their doctors. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of it is that. We- so, I mean, let's just walk it back. When I was 18 and using oxys, that was a safe supply. When I mm. bought an 80 milligram oxycontin, that was exactly 80 milligrams of actual oxycontin, right? Mm-hmm. There was yeah. no contamination. There was no dosage variability. So there was no way for me to overdose because we were dosing correctly, mm-hmm. yeah. specifically, accurately. Um, and me doing those 80 milligram oxys, that was the last time I had anything resembling a safe supply. So mm-hmm. when they choked out the the pain the pain medication, it severely impacted chronic pain patients, right? Who were immediately started to be yeah. treated like criminals. They conflated, you know, physical dependency with addiction. Horrible, horrible, horrible. But not only did it affect chronic pain, pain chronic pain patients, it affected the whole drug supply because it 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 just totally dried up anything resembling a safe supply. So we all turned to heroin, and then heroin slowly became fentanyl and now we've got these blues and these counterfeit pills that look like xanax and oxys but are actually fentanyl and kids are dying off those in record numbers youth i have a paper coming out on april 12th that talks about this okay horrific tragedy wow where's that gonna be out at that's in jama that's academic I'll, i'll look for that I, I always ask people this, but do you want to talk about why you think you got addicted to drugs? Uh, uh, yeah. A lot of people, it's, chi- it's a lot of people's childhood trauma or even adult trauma. You know, I sat, I had five years to sit around in jail and prison and think about why I had gotten addicted to drugs. And I'm not a typical case. And I, I understood that from the very first time I went to drug rehab when I was 21. And the people around me all had suffered either like a premature death of their parent or sexual trauma. And I, I didn't relate to that. I, I hadn't had any of these like egregious traumas. And so I, I never fully understood why I did drugs. I, I used to say I did drugs because they were fun until they weren't anymore. Um, but then once I got to jail and prison, I, I, I could think about this a lot more clearly. The first time I tried to hang myself, I was 11 years old. So that's wow. indicative of a pretty deep problem. Mm-hmm. mental health problem um i was raised i had two moms way way before that was acceptable socially mm-hmm. um, my parents were gay 
except my mom was in the military. So we had to hide the fact that yeah. that was my family structure and that my mom was gay. That's even before don't ask, don't tell and don't ask, don't tell wasn't that much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always sort of lived this fractured life, right? There was like a public presentation and a private presentation that was always different. And then I, there was extreme violence that occurred in my house, uh, constant, constant mm-hmm. domestic violence and turmoil. I never, like I would hear my other friend, like, you know, kids in school would be like, Oh my God, I'm so distraught. My parents are divorcing. And I'm like, Oh my God, I would pay money for my parents to divorce. <laughs> Could they please get divorced? Like, I mean, they weren't technically married because gay marriage wasn't allowed back yeah. then, but you know what I mean? Like I just yeah. wanted them to separate because all they did was fight and I had to deal with that. And I, I started to learn that I just wanted to disappear. I didn't want to exist anymore. I couldn't control my circumstances around me. Um, and I didn't like my circumstances, but I couldn't change them. And so some, on some deep subconscious level, I just started to want to I stop existing, stop existing. And so I started fantasizing a lot about suicide. I remember sitting down when I was 13 years old and writing out this like scrawling suicide note. I was finally going to do it. And, you know, I, I didn't do it. I never did it. Um, and so I just had these extreme mental health problems, depression, anxiety. I never did any extracurricular activities. I didn't have friends, but my parents were so embroiled in their own conflict that they couldn't really deal with me or my social problems or my anxieties. And I just mm-hmm. learned to make myself scarce, stay out of the way, entertain myself. Um, and then by the time I'm 16 years old and I start doing cocaine, my pediatrician goes, oh, yeah, it's definitely the cocaine. That's your problem. You're going to need to stop using cocaine. And I just remember thinking like, wait, what? Like the cocaine's new. I've been having problems. <laughs> um, yeah. And drugs were fun. Yeah, they, it was a relief. It was finally a little reprieve yeah. <laughs> from the impending doom, that oppressive cloud of darkness that had followed me since I could remember. There's this whole idea that, uh, you know, addiction and originates in the drug and there's uh, they're inherently evil substances. And even even the term calling a drug addictive is kind of a fallacy mm-hmm. to me because I my I shouldn't even say this on the podcast because my cousin will be over here in five minutes. But my wife had payment occasion for four years ago and we, I think that we still have a pill floating around that mm-hmm. didn't make us addicted to opiates yeah I don't understand why people imbue inanimate objects like they anthropomorphize them as if drugs could even be evil they're not alive <laughs> they're, yeah. they're not they don't have they're not sentient beings like yeah. that's like saying a chair is evil <laughs> yeah yeah you, you were clean from uh, opiates since since you've been in prison right yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I got I uh, I quit using when I was in jail. I used for the first yeah. year I was in jail. That was real miserable. I learned a lot about myself and my addiction. Finally got the resolve to quit. And eight years ago this week, I asked the judge to transfer me out of that jail and into the jail that had no drugs <laughs> for that okay. exact reason. And that's when I stopped. Okay, so let's let's uh, get the kratom here. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, that was a great article. Uh, it's in Filter Mag. I'll link everything. Um, so when did you start using kratom, and uh, or when did you start hearing about it? I mean, I st- I've been hearing about it. I remember this one time I was trying to kick heroin 
with my girlfriend at the time. And I went to the head shop and I bought some Kratom because I heard it was like good for that. But I wasn't connected enough. I wasn't like on Reddit. I didn't know what to do. I didn't take enough. Like, you know, it was dumb. Yeah. But like I, I've been hearing about it. Um, but then like two years ago, I was at last January. I'm in Venice Beach at the super bougie farmer's market. Or I'm not like Marina Del Rey with all these like rich people. <laughs> and there's this dude selling Kratom. And I'm like, oh, I should try that again. You know, like I remember, I remember hearing about this when I was uh, addicted and I bought some and I really liked it. I, I would just, I didn't know how much to take. And I remember liking it. And then I like bought some online, but I, I made the fatal mistake of taking too much the yeah. first time that I took it and I got the wobbles and I was like, well, this is some bullshit. I'm never doing this again. Yeah. And I don't remember what it was that made me. So like, you know, I came back into the States I moved back to the States. I tried to get my Xanax prescription continued. They weren't having it. You know, mm. I'm a, a person with an addiction history. So therefore any substance that enters my body and, you know, it's the weird anthropomorphizing of drugs as if Xanax were evil. And mm -hmm. I am incapable of controlling my behaviors because eight <laughs> years ago I did heroin. Yeah. Uh, but my mental health really tanked. And so mm. I started getting really suicidal again, mm. really bad, real scary and for the first time, not actually wanting to kill myself, but realizing that I was maybe going to. And that might huh. sound weird, but it's like, but there was a part of me that didn't actually want to, and another part of me that was going to do it. Wow. Um, and at that point, I was researching online on Reddit about this, and I saw a whole bunch of people using Kratom for their mental health, for depression and suicidal ideation. Hmm. And I gave it another shot, started with a smaller dosage. And immediately realized that I had found a miracle drug. Uh, having said that, you also said, let me read the quote, uh, Kratom does cause physical dependency, and that can be downplayed by its advocates. I don't know why people have to be such extremists. Like, it's all good or it's all bad. Yeah. No, bro. <laughs> no, it's got pros and cons like everything else in life. In fact, right now, I wish I wasn't dependent on Kratom. It's pissing me off because I want to go, I want to travel this summer in some countries I'm going to. Um, it's a prohibited substance. And because I have a drug trafficking you know, history on my record, I'm highly scrutinized at international borders. So there's no way I'm traveling with it. So I'm going to have to get off it. And that's given me anxiety, I'll be honest. So can you talk about your experience with like, with tolerance, like how you build it up? And, and and how you like you said you take tolerance tolerance breaks, right? Yeah, yeah, mm. totally. So, you know, I started with my figuring out my therapeutic dose was about a gram and a half. I'm six feet tall, so I'm pretty big. So a gram and a mm. half was reasonable. Um, and then it creeps, right? And I'm familiar with opioids. I know this drill. Like I've been here before, <laughs> you know, but yeah. obviously it's it's like the most mild case of it when compared to actual opioids but yeah. you know i am familiar with how tolerance builds and so i catch i caught my dose creeping you know the same dose wouldn't do the same thing but when my when my single dose gets up to four or five grams that's when i know it's time to chill it i for, it's super arbitrary i just like make up rules that i live by I've been yeah doing this since, since i was in jail and prison i just like make up these really overly rigid strict rules and then impose them on myself and so when my dose gets up to four grams, I will start dosing down. I try to wait longer in between my doses. I'll get down to one or two grams a day over the course of about a week, stay at that for a few days, and then get back up. So that's my tolerance breaks don't get down to nothing. They get down to one or two grams, especially like right before bed, because otherwise I have trouble sleeping. 
I mean, that seems like a, you know, a very uh, moderate amount to me. I mean, I just had tea this morning with four grams, but I don't, but I don't, I'm not a daily consumer. I don't do it multiple okay. times. I, I actually haven't had Kratom in like a month. You know, I, I regret sometimes my, I, I made a very conscious decision to start taking it every day. Cause if you, if you decide that you have to follow through with it, you have to take it every day. Otherwise you're going to experience withdrawal. And I did that back in November. And sometimes I wish I wouldn't have. Since we're on withdrawals, if you could compare like a heroin withdrawal to a kratom withdrawal, yeah, it, it, it ain't shit. Can I say that? I can try different <laughs> words. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's nothing. Some of the physical symptoms are quite similar, but that all-consuming dread, anxiety, general malaise, and discomfort that comes with opioid withdrawals, it doesn't match. So yeah, sure, my eyes are watering, my nose is runny, but uh, the, the not sleeping is, is really shitty, actually. I really don't like the part that it takes me a long time to fall asleep. Um, but like, if I'm up and moving around, I don't even really notice it. I'm like, oh yeah, my eyes are kind of watering, my nose is runny. That is nothing like Karen withdrawal, because the eyes runny you know, the eyes being watery and the nose running is the most physical symptom of heroin withdrawal, but really it's what you're feeling internally that is devastating you, mm. right? Like these outward presenting symptoms are trivial when when compared to what you're feeling internally. And that's not what happens with Kratom is you get mostly these outward presenting sy symptoms that are mildly uncomfortable or annoying, but you don't get that all-consuming sense of dread. And you said upon Upon stopping uh, your kratom use, uh, you said, I do feel depressed and suicidal, but is that from withdrawal or simply a return to baseline? So I'll put the question to you. Yeah, you know, I I think it's probably a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes I convince myself that I need the kratom, and I am so convinced of that, I make it become true emotionally, mm -hmm. that without it, I think, oh, all this anxiety is because I don't have the kratom, and then it becomes true. But really, that was just a a fleeting moment of anxiety that would have passed had I not affixed it in my mind to the need to take another dose of Kratom. And I actually think even in heroin addiction, a lot of my perception was false. It was like I, I created a false reality of what was existing um, in my body and in my mind. And I, I remember thinking that this one time I got out of treatment and I was like, wow, my addiction is just the externalization of all my internal emotions. Like it's me projecting my emotions onto external objects so as it, and then which gives me the illusion of control because it's like, mm -hmm. oh, this anxiety actually just means I need to take another dose. And once I do that, my anxiety will go down. And because I believe that it becomes true. A similar thing happens with my, my creative to a lesser extent, much lesser extent. I mean, I'm suicidal half the time anyway, even when I take Kratom, mm -hmm. I just... It's just like slightly calming. So uh, like all things, it's both, you know, my baseline is pretty low and coming off of Kratom, a little bit of withdrawals will push me towards maybe higher anxiety and depression, which therefore pushes me to more suicidal ideation. Um, but some of that is just me convincing myself that I've grown to need the Kratom and that without it, I'm worse off. Mm -hmm. And that's not real though. It's yeah. like, and I notice it because I'll forget to dose sometimes. And I'm as long as I'm busy, I don't even notice it. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just forget. Yeah. I, I mean, I've even talked to daily users that say, uh, I went on vacation and I forgot to bring it and I, mm -hmm. I was cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so much of it's mental. So yeah. much of addiction and dependency is so mental. If we just don't hyper focus on the uncomfortable symptoms, 
we could forget that they're there. They're not. It's so mild. It's so mild. You even talked in the article about um, case reports that you looked at. The studies, uh, with few exceptions, the Kratom studies are retrospective. Yeah, inherent negative bias. No one walks yeah. to the emergency department to tell you that Kratom cut their pain in half. Yeah. I was trying to design a research study um, for Kratom, thinking maybe using trawling of social media and Reddit if I got permission from the mods or, or something. Um, because there's so much positive benefit that's evident to me when I collect a very large sample size of Reddit posts, so many different health and mental health benefits are being provided to people taking it. Yet when I go to the academic literature, there's almost nothing. I saw this one study that used firsthand accounts from Arrowid back when that was a thing. Yeah, Dr. Swagger did that one. I've had him on okay. the podcast. And and you know what they are working on? They are working on all kinds of new stuff. I have uh, a contact, um, Kirsten Smith in NIDA. She's a former heroin user, and she works in NIDA now, which is awesome. That's and uh, they're working on they're, – they're, they have provided like uh, $7 million in research on Kratom, and they're really Kratom positive. They just updated their Kratom page. Uh, so and she's in there working on it yeah I just set up I have had her on the show before and I just set up another interview I'm glad that there might be some research coming down the pipeline that shows its medical benefit because you know we got some state legislators here trying to say it has no medicinal value and scheduling out of schedule one and that is that's like tell me you've never taken kratom without telling me you've never taken kratom you're like schedule one substance (laughs) no medicinal value and i'm like ah yeah clearly you have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) let's schedule one something that's uh like a partial opioid agonist and just mix it in there with that the awesome uh illicit market supply totally sounds this is a great plan y'all yeah um it's just so mild you know like yeah. It's just such a mild substance that like it's, it's, it's not intoxicating. It's not impairment. Yeah, no, not at all. Like, I'm feeling, I just had some, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Yeah. I, don't, I don't feel like, oh, I can't do this interview. Right. You know? <laughs> no, it helps me get my work done, honestly, because sometimes my anxiety, depression gets so bad, I get paralyzed. I have a hard time uh, moving through my projects. And, yeah. And, Kratom is such a good tool in that way if I take it and it just gives me this sort of like boost of energy and maybe the energy is just coming because my anxiety is reducing. I don't know, but it, it really helps me be a better professional, be a better productive member of society. And then to hear senators trying to ban it as if it was some like wild intoxicant that was ruining my life is so weird. Was that just in the state of Oregon? That's Kentucky. No, Oregon just passed a regulatory yes, bill. Yes, so I was Oregon- just going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. They Yesterday, they just passed the uh, Creative Consumer Protection Act. And it's actually a good one, too, because it actually has an enforcement uh, money allocated for enforcement. The, Some of these states, the law's just there just in case somebody sells a bunch of crap and they can go in yeah. and bust them. But the Oregon one actually has an enforcement arm where processors are going to be regulated. They're going to be designated processors. And they're going to have to go through a clean, uh, good manufacturing practices thing. So everybody that distributes, even everybody that distributes it is, is eventually going to have to get it from processors who are licensed. So it's going to be clean stuff. Is that going to affect my ability to buy it online? From my I don't know. I don't think so. 
I don't think okay. so. I, I haven't looked at it too closely, but I'll. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So what what kind of kratom do you use? Uh, there was a picture of the crushed leaf uh, in your uh, article. That was a weird picture. I don't know why they chose that. Nobody oh, asked that... for my input on what image to use. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I Honestly, I mostly buy pre-filled capsules. Mm. And people are like, oh, but it's more expensive. But like I used to spend $180 on heroin every two days. So <laughs> really spending 25% more for for capsules does not phase me. Yeah. it's My use is still less than a dollar a day. Um, I use green strains mostly. Okay. Uh, I, I've read a lot about the strains. I'm, I'm super intrigued by it. Personal experiences, I took, like, I know that they're the same. I know that it's the same plant. It's not yeah. actually like a different plant. I get it. And I feel like when I take whites, I get more anxiety. People argue about this online at length. Yeah, and, and that's kind of why we need, like, alkaloid profile, like uh, cannabis has all the cannabinoids uh, right. on the side. There's just not the infrastructure, the lab infrastructure to do that yet, but it'll it'll get rid of the whole idea of the strains because then you'll know how much of an alkaloid you're getting. But they're yeah. still down at University of Florida School of Pharmacy trying to figure out exactly what the alkaloids even do. <laughs> they're tr- they're, they're going to be starting human clinical trials. And it was interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I think eventually, like, I don't know. It's not, like, coming up, but but they're getting close to them. Which which will be awesome. They want to develop a uh, opioid addiction treatment drug from whatever combination of alkaloids is is the best combination. Mitragynine in itself, uh, it hits on those um, mu opioid receptors, which you mentioned in your article, but it also hits on other receptors that might right. further... Uh, ha- be protective. Even that one alkaloid does. Uh, Doctor Sharma, who I was talking to, it does like it has like four different uh, the effects of four different opioid treatment drugs. Uh, he said that they're commonly used. He said for six months I hesitated to share publicly that I use this substance. Uh, so why did you hesitate? Well. I am appointed to multiple state government positions as a person in long-term recovery. Mm. I represent a highly prestigious academic institution in my job. I didn't want to bring them any negative press or trolling on Twitter. I didn't want people to like expel me from my government positions by accusing me of not being a person in recovery. Um, And yeah, just that internalized stigma of, like oh am i an addict like do i mm. do i need this to survive am i less than am i subhuman is there something wrong with me am i deficient um because i consume a substance no mm. matter how mild and i know that that's ridiculous um but that's that's where i was at and then i just started realizing I don't know. I lived my whole life like a political campaign, like as if I had secrets, you could blackmail me with them. And so I just am super honest and transparent. And it's like, it's like I said, like when I used to try to conform to societal norms, like to be, to fit in, I ended up not fitting in for whatever, you know, just cause I'm a weirdo. But now that like my brand is, I do not conform to societal norms. I am a weirdo. All of a sudden, I have like really broad acceptance across mul- multiple spheres of society, and that's, that's weird. I, I think we're just in a transition point in 
in U.S. public perception. Yeah. Yeah. And I just didn't I, I don't want to keep it a secret. They were, you know, they were talking about banning it and I work in drug policy. So like, y'all want to talk about banning it? Listen to my experience first, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I shared it publicly because so many of my friends are, have died from fentanyl, heroin before that. If there's another tool in our toolbox to stave off mass death, why don't we use it? Yeah, absolutely. And and just so many people I've heard from that, that said it's saved my life. I mean, you know, like a vendor might use that to uh, promote it or something, but we have gotten so many comments. I have like 230 pages. I, I, I'll, I can email it to you. I, I, it's like a file of 230 pages of comments of, and then I hashtagged all of them. This is my 2020 COVID project. And, yeah. uh, but it's all, all, it's all from our site. And, um, and it's a P, in a PDF file. I can email it to you, um, yeah. but you can go through it with a hashtag, but it's just thing after thing after thing. And it's, it's never anybody being like, Oh, we got so ripped on Kratom. It's just like, right. nobody. it's like nobody like that. It's people who have chronic pain. The average age is like 45. I'm 45 oh, or like 40 to 45 or 35 yeah. to 45. Uh, you know, a lot of old people use it. Um, so Oregon has drug decriminalization now. Can you talk about what that's like is there a noticeable yeah. change are people who use drugs like relieved yeah so you know i got to volunteer on the yes on measure one tank campaign and then pretty much everyone's surprised it passed like by a landslide and then i got appointed to the oregon health authority to be one of the 21 people that oversees the implementation of drug decriminalization in oregon it's pronounced oregon i know it's spelled funny or just like a you okay. know, piano or your liver. Same thing. Um, <laughs> so drugs were decriminalized on February 1st, 2021. So we just celebrated the one year anniversary. People who use drugs are relieved, but it took 50 years of the war on drugs for police to become feared as the enemy because police decided, hey, all you people who use drugs, you're my enemy and I'm going to try to arrest you. Like it was a game. So police decided that people who use drugs, we followed suit. It's going to take a long time to undo those wounds, right? To heal all that trauma. Yeah. But there, there is a collective sigh of relief that we are breathing here because at least you won't go to jail for possession. Yeah. And that is enormous. And so now what we're doing, the next part of that is using all our cannabis tax revenue, which is about $300 million per budget cycle to infuse that into a substance use treatment system. So harm reduction and overdose prevention, peer mentoring, outpatient, uh, suboxone, methadone. And so we're, we're giving out that money right now. And it's just so like the drug war has come full circle. Meanwhile, across the border in Idaho, they still have some of the most punitive cannabis laws in the country. And over here, we're selling it, taxing it, and funneling yeah. that money back into communities. It's like, what are y'all doing? Oh, man, that's such a good policy. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like <laughs> fantasizing about it in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, we have Philly, Pittsburgh, where I am, and then we have Pennsylvania. So nothing cool, cool can get past. I'm. We have medical here, though. <laughs> we have medical, so I call a guy up, say I have anxiety, I get my card. So it's all good. At least you have that. You know, Pennsylvania is the worst state in the country for drug-induced homicide prosecutions. 
Oh, really? By far. Yeah, Ohio is number two. So they send more people to prison under that drug delivery resulting in death statute than any other state. It doesn't help at all. And they don't use it to prosecute like kingpins or actual dealers. They mostly use it for the person who was with the person who died or the person who last saw that, you know, it's just like the lowest hanging fruit. Who's easiest to find is the friend. Like I've seen cases out of Pennsylvania where like the best friend gets sent up for 15 years or the one brother dies and the other brother goes to prison for the overdose. And then the mom is grieving the loss of two sons, one to death and one to prison. Yeah. Pennsylvania is a weird place. That's all I got to say. You got some very interesting policies and then there's like and then i see like philly on twitter and i'm like how is this the same state (laughs) of like the hyper punitive policies i don't get it (laughs) yeah i've never been (laughs) yeah no philly's cool pittsburgh's cool too that was like an injustice i mean you made a video of somebody that trolled you and said oh you should have got life in prison Mm -hmm. and it's just it's based on a kind of, I would say, after-school special, but that's an over-40 reference, I think. But, like, a fear-based idea of a drug pusher, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, instead, you just happen to have more heroin at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that sucks. It it pisses me off. Uh, thank you for telling me uh, yeah. Pennsylvania is so bad about that. Do you have any thoughts about, okay, so we have, de- you to have decriminalization now. So what about maybe the path to legalization? What do you think like a legalized heroin would look like? So I am not confident in our hyper-capitalistic society to legalize heroin properly. Mm. So when I say legalize, I mean somewhere in between medicalize and legalize because like yeah. I want a well-regulated industry that is not aggressively advertising to people because I'm disappointed in, at least in the state of Oregon, on how we handled weed legalization. Why are there so many billboards about buying weed? Like weed sells itself. You don't yeah. need to sell it like that. And then and there's just like in plain view of, of kids walking by. And I just I just don't approve of it. Like yeah. I think people should do all the drugs that they want to do, like to, to do drugs to your heart's content. But marketers should not be gaming people's psychology to try to convince them to do more drugs. That's where I draw the line. Yeah, you get rid of alcohol commercials too because I'll still drink. I'll still drink. Right, tell themselves word of mouth. Um, And so, if we were gonna legalize, I would want it highly regulated. Honestly, like at least like strict prohibitions on on marketing and advertising. And it's still the drug is dangerous, man. My like I had friends overdosing. And I off of strict heroin long before fentanyl. A lot of that's because they didn't know the dosage they were using, which would mm-hmm. be alleviated under a regularization scheme. But drugs themselves still hold some inherent risks, right? Ask an alcoholic if they feel empowered because they can buy their booze at the liquor store. Probably not. Like they're still addiction itself still has some inherent dangers, which is just why I want to see a, a system of regulation that boosts the safety of you so that people are making fully informed consensual decisions about what they're putting into their body, why, when, how often, how much, and that that is not being influenced by late stage capitalism. <laughs> yeah. I, I like what that group's doing in Vancouver with the little black and white boxes, yeah. heroin, Coke, meth. That's see, that's perfect. Like mm-hmm. that style 
of, of distribution where you're not targeting new customers, right? Yeah, We're not yeah. trying to create new customers out of somebody who just turned 18 or just turned 21. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to pe- help people who are already, you know, in the black market, which is now super toxic, have live safer and healthier lives. Or, you know, if someone's super suicidal and drugs would help them with their mental health, let them like opioids are a wonderful antidepressants, honestly, like for, for a mm-hmm. lot of people that have treatment resistant depression, I think they could probably use opioids as long as they had a safe and regulated supply. Yeah. I mean, people take them because they work. <laughs> right. Exactly. People yeah. get addicted to them because they work. They work super well, in fact. And unlike most other drugs, opioids are not inherently toxic to the human body. You, long-term use doesn't cause problems as long as it's pure and yeah. not contaminated. Yeah. That's that's the thing. with. I mean, the Kratom market is unregulated enough as it is. It's either regulation or the Wild West with, with, like, these vendors just don't, some of them don't give a shit right. already about contamination. So you'll, that's why making a tea is sometimes safer if you get Kratom that you don't really know because it'll at least sterilize the, the contaminants. And I like tea. I recommend tea too. I have a friend who has a company that just sells tea bags of Kratom. And uh, I just recommend that too because, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like more of a, of a ritual and it, you have to take your time to get there. Uh, so maybe it'll be like, it just, it depends on the individual, but it, it'll be like it more of a buffer between and then you've you had your tea it takes like 30 minutes to steep and if mm-hmm. you're just drinking tea then it'll take you another 30 minutes to make the next one so i don't know i don't know if that would work for everybody but, the but... taste why does it why is it gotta be so nasty <laughs> i'm used to i'm used to the tea <laughs> I can't do it. tea and lemon i used to put honey but i gave up sugar so i just do tea and lemon and i, I didn't mind it I just wanted to talk about that that video again you did with with the life in prison lady. You said you thought it might have been a grieving parent. Um, we are getting yeah. that in the kratom community because a lot of the times um, the, the kids, like the one kid, had a heart condition and he had a lot of kratom. The other kid appeared to just have a lot of kratom, but it's one of these death by mince adventure things where they just eat a ton of it, and they're usually young men. It totally fits the profiles of somebody that wants to do quote-unquote heroic doses. Do you have ways of... I mean, I don't know. I know you're a writer, communicator. Do you see any way that to communicate with a grieving parent to to let them know that prohibition is more harmful? So I'm working on this messaging right now. We're very concerned because we're releasing that paper on April 12th about youth overdose Mm -hmm. and it had to be really short. So literally all it says is youth overdose is increasing. So how are parents going to respond to that? Well, we already know, right? Mm -hmm. That it's going to be these like super punitive, put them all in prison. But that's just because parents have never been shown another way. They were born, right? You know, as during the tough on crime era or came of age during the the tough on crime era. Just say no. I'm 45. So I I grew up with uh, Nancy Reagan on TV, all kinds of after school specials, like I said. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so it's like reflexive now. We've been, because literally we were taught for 50 years that incarceration is the solution to our problems. It was never true and it's never been more untrue than it is now. But the response of that is like reflexive at this point. No one's thinking critically about it. No one's like, oh, wait, but the war on drugs dovetailed with the worst overdose crisis in human history. Maybe that's not the solution, you know, like also like mass incarceration peaked in the in the 2000s it's just so silly but so i'm working on my messaging for this right now you know parents are are really concerned that decriminalization sends the wrong message or or like any sort of safer use strategies harm reduction messaging is quote sending the wrong message about drugs Mm -hmm. i'm a lot more worried about sending kids to their graves than i am sending the wrong message we should do everything in our power to avert preventable death which overdose very much is so they're kind of they're pe- people t- take that prohibition as like an ideological stance like they die on this ideological hill of prohibition and meanwhile in reality kids are literally dying and mm-hmm. so I-, I keep ideology out of it we know what works we have empirical research that shows what works and it's not criminalization so let's do what works I asked everybody this, but do you have a doctor that you could talk to about creative use? No. Yeah. Um, I would be super afraid of that. Uh, yeah. A friend of mine told their doctor and they were, they panicked and said, Oh my God, that stuff is poison. It's worse than Suboxone. You're going to have to get on Suboxone to get off of that, uh, which is wild. Um, and so I learned in that moment, probably don't tell anyone people just people fear what they don't understand right we fear abstract concepts we it's very rare that we fear tangible things before our eyes because then it's real and we can see it but the potentiality of an abstract threat is so great um that people are terrified of it and so i just uh, i keep it to myself which is unfortunate yeah i wish that i could like i wish like i don't like secrets but literally i can't tell the truth you have not created an environment where I can tell the truth without being punished. Yeah, that sucks. And another thing about the doctors, they're probably reading those case reports, if anything. They're not going to read right. pharmacological papers. or, I mean, some of them might. Or social science. I don't even know if that's a true statement. But they're in general, they'll probably just listen to the FDA on anything. And, and the FDA decided it's bad. I think Kratom holds a wonderful medicinal value helping people transition from fentanyl to Suboxone, mm-hmm. uh, which is currently a really rife time. Um, I, and it just, it just it holds so much medicinal value. Um, I wish that doctors could be more receptive to it, but there isn't that peer-reviewed literature for them to read so that they can be receptive to it in an ethical way. Yeah, and actually... Actually, there is that just came out. Um, uh, Dr. Swagger and Dr. Smith, Kirsten Smith, who I, I mentioned before, they just put I, out a guide for health care providers for Kratom, which is pretty cool. Uh, and I hope it, uh, they read it. <laughs> I'm glad that that exists. I'll have to send that around. And I just had one more question that has nothing to do with anything. What's it like being on CNN? <laughs> Well, uh, I had to get up at 5.30 in the morning because I live on the West Coast and <laughs> CNN faced in New York City. Uh, so I was on live TV. I was 
in Tijuana, Mexico at the time. And very unfortunately, they like run ran that banner across. So like it said, like live from Tijuana, Mexico. And I was like, man, I really wish you wouldn't have done that. <laughs> uh, I'm like an economic refugee. Like, you know, I, at the time I was dating a non-citizen was the primary reason I was yeah. out of the out of the country. And it was just so much cheaper to live. You know, I still technically always lived in Oregon, but I was spending a lot of time there. And yeah, they ran that on CNN. It was it was scary. What you don't see is that the day before I had gone on his radio show. And what I said on the radio was completely different, completely different. And I got trolled really heavily, but I read all the comments. I read the trolls and I was able to understand how people were interpreting what I was saying and then modify what I was saying to, to sort of diminish the misinterpretation. And I did that very successfully, even though it was five 30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Cause it, it struck me that that's like, so not the format for uh, complex topics, like, like that you were talking about. And I think, I think it was uh, uh, the uh, homicide by uh, uh, what's called, um, yeah, drug-induced homicide, drug, drug delivery resulting in death. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's one of those new things. And and why do they always yell on CNN? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like he was yelling at. He was exactly. he was a pretty sympathetic guy, though. I thought I'm moving into other formats that aren't historically great for talking about complex topics. So I got yeah. on TikTok this weekend, and like my TikToks about drug-induced homicide kind of went viral, and all of a sudden I have ten thousand followers on TikTok. Um, and so I'm working on how to distill my messages into smaller bites so that a wider audience can can hear me because we are we have this we're at this weird moment where we're pushing for like more compassionate responses to drug use. And also there's all these grieving parents pushing for more punitive responses. And these movements are happening at the same time. So I think my message has never been more important. And I will acclimate myself to all possible mediums to spread it including TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was a good ending. Um, Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Your writing is just awesome, and and I'm going to go in and read more of it. Thank you, Morgan Godvin. I highly recommend reading her stuff at morgangodvin.com, and we have her link tree in the description as well as a link to the Kratom article. So far, we don't advertise, we don't ask for donations, but we do ask for your support. If you please share this podcast on social media, like, subscribe, comment, rate, review, wherever you listen to podcasts. The music is Risey, the song is Memories of Thailand. Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.